0: All right, turn to John chapter 8 in your copy of God's Word. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of what's coming up next Sunday. Uh, Next Sunday, after our second service, we are having our members meeting. So, if you are a member here at Grace, we would love to have you join us at 1230 over in the gym. Uh, Lunch will be provided. And this will be a time for us to celebrate what God is and has been doing here at the church and talk about where he's leading us as we move forward prayerfully, considering where he might be leading us um, to go. And also, one of the things that we'll be doing is we will be um, calling our elders who serve here at the church. It's a high calling, and uh, we take that very seriously. If you want to know more about that, you can find this little bulletin thingy at the entrances where you came in, and this will give you an idea of who these men are that we are proposing to serve as elders, as well as how that's going to be playing out. I encourage you to pick this up and prayerfully uh, be considering this in advance of next week's members meeting. If you're a member with us and you're planning on being there, you can help us out immensely by signing up online. Um, or out in the circle. That way we can get a good estimate for food, um, because uh, we don't want to run out of that. So would love to have you join us next Sunday. If you have any questions, uh, please let me know. And I do know the question that all of you have for me is, Josh, how are you doing this morning? And uh, I'm, I'm making it. It's good to see all the smiling faces, I'll say that. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a Notre Dame fan. So the game last night was a great game until the final play. That was. Uh, it was wonderful. So, um, you know, I was with some friends from church watching the game, and at halftime, I, uh, I turned to them and I said, this is a problem. Uh, I've got more points in my sermon tomorrow morning than Notre Dame has right now. <laughs> and uh, that was not good. Thankfully, they corrected that. This will not be a 14-point sermon. You're welcome. Uh, they, they corrected that, but uh, you no, know, it was a great game, so I'm glad you're happy to be at church this morning. Um, and I will try not to say anything to offend you, like Lou Holtz offended Ryan Day. I'll try my best to do that, but I will say nonetheless that the words in our text this morning are quite offensive to you and I and to Jesus' original audience, his hearers. John chapter eight, I hope you're there by now. If you don't have a Bible, on the pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 894. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love, when you leave, please take that one with you. We would love that to be yours. John chapter 8, we'll be picking it up in verse 31. These are some hard words from Jesus, but they are some words that we very much need to hear. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to your word. We ask that you would cause us to abide in your word, to not go searching out other streams, looking for truth elsewhere in other people or in other things. May we rest in, abide in your word. Give us ears to hear. The words that you have to say to us through your text, through your words more through this text, uh, cause our hearts to believe in you in deeper ways. Sift through the intentions of our heart to show us whether our belief is genuine in you or if there are areas where we are harboring unbelief in our hearts with a profession of faith on our lips. Show us the areas in which we are in bondage, enslaved to sin. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to take you seriously at your word and what you say. And I ask that you would cause us to believe in you, treasure you, delight in you, and walk in the freedom you give to us. And we ask you to do this by your word. We ask this in Christ's name, and we ask it for his glory. Amen. So I feel pretty confident saying everybody in this room this morning likes freedom. You want to be free. You love freedom. It's appealing to you. Um, you know, when I was a... When I was a kid, um, my parents had the audacity to every Sunday afternoon, for a little bit, uh, say, you have to spend an hour with nap time. I mean, can you believe that? An hour on Sunday afternoon in our rooms. We couldn't—they didn't didn't say you have to sleep. They just said, please stay in your room so probably they could sleep. That's probably what they were going for. And uh, I mean, a whole hour imprisoned in my room. It was— miserable. And uh, here's what we did. Here's what my siblings and I did. We, uh, we figured out, okay, if I have to stay in my room, we're going to take all the sheets off of our beds, and we're going to start in our room, and we're going to stretch that out to make a path to the other people's rooms. And here's what we reasoned. If I'm touching the blanket, and the blanket's touching my room, I'm technically still in my room. <laughs> that did not go over too well, but nonetheless, um, it was an ingenious plan that we came up with. And we thought that freedom would come through disobeying our parents' rules. It's not too dissimilar from the way that we tend to operate. We tend to think that freedom comes through disobedience, through saying, I don't want to be subject to those rules anymore. And we live longing for freedom. If you're a teenager in here, you want freedom. You want more freedom. And you're in a season of life where you have some more freedom than you used to, but you're also still under your parents' roof, and so you don't have the freedom that you wish you had, and so it leads to a bunch of conflict. You want more freedom. It's actually pretty similar to where some of you who are older find yourselves. You want more freedom to do things without assistance like you used to do it, and yet you can't. Your body doesn't let you anymore, and so you need help doing the things that you once found easy to do, and you want more freedom to do it. All of us want more freedom. Maybe you just want the freedom to set your own hours at work. Or you want the freedom to say, I don't have to go to another kid's choir concert for a little while." Or you want the freedom to say, I want my schedule to be totally, um, totally free during Ohio State football games. I don't know what it is, but we all want more freedom than we tend to have. The quest for freedom is embedded into us as human beings, and it is embedded into us as Americans because we love freedom. In fact, that is the central ideal that we are built around, the land of the free. We wanna be free, and we should praise God for the freedom that we have especially to gather together like this this morning without fear of repercussion or persecution. That's something many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have the freedom to do. And we should praise God for that. So I'm not trying to disparage the desire for freedom. In fact, I'm saying all of us resonate with it. All of us resonate with a longing. I want to be free. I want to have more freedom. And if that's where you're at this morning, then can I suggest to you that you need to listen to the words that Jesus has to say to us this morning. If you're like, yeah, I, I like freedom, I want freedom, then you need to listen to what Jesus has to say because Jesus is telling us, here's the only way true freedom's really found. Here's the only place it's really found. See, we love freedom so much. We're, you know, we're Americans, we're free. That if freedom's one of our greatest ideals, then slavery must be one of our greatest evils. And so if I were to stand up here this morning and imply that you actually were enslaved and not free, you would probably get offended by that. And that's precisely what Jesus does with this audience. He offers freedom. says, you want to be free? But rather than rejoicing at the offer of freedom that he, he, he hands out, they get offended by the implication that they are slaves in the first place. Who are you to tell us that we even need freeing? We're not slaves. You see this in verse 33. They answer Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, these are proud Israelites. They're proud of their heritage. They're proud of their people. They're proud of their country. And it's not entirely true, of course, if you know your Bible. It's not entirely true that they were never enslaved. They were enslaved a few times, most notably in Egypt. It's one of the Bible's most important stories that God's people, by God's kind providence, wound up in Egypt. But over time, the, uh, the Pharaoh became intimidated by them and the Pharaoh sought to wipe God's people out. God sought to let his people go. And God triumphed over Pharaoh. He displayed his glory by leading his people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom, following after him. And in light of that, God commanded the Israelites, you are not to enslave one another. Here's what he told them in Leviticus chapter 25. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. See, God tells them, I've already redeemed them. They're mine. They belong to me. Don't enslave them. So these Israelites are saying, well, we're free. We're children of Abraham. We, we're, we're free people. And Jesus comes and implies that they're slaves. We would probably get offended the same way they got offended. But again, if you really long for freedom, if you really say, yeah, I, I like freedom. I want to have more freedom than I currently do. We need to listen to what Jesus has to say. And Jesus says these things to sift through what kind of faith we have in him, what kind of belief we have, because he, he hears, he's sitting and looking at people who have a profession of faith, but he knows not all of them actually possess faith. And so he's wanting to sift through. What does genuine faith really look like? You see this at the end of our text from last week in verse 30. We'll get a running start into our text this week. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So here's what's happening. Verse 30, Jesus is teaching these things to the crowd. Many of them believe in his name. So here's what he does. He shifts his attention and he looks at that group, that many who believed in him. And he says, all right, I want to make sure your faith is genuine. I want to make sure you actually know what, what we're talking about here. I want to make sure you really are believing in me, what you say you are. Because look, verse 45, toward the end of our text, look at what it says. Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. What happened between verse 30 and verse 45? Something changed. The crowds, you believe in me, verse 45, you don't believe in me, what changed? Jesus is is driving at, you gotta make sure your faith is actually genuine. And that's what we will look at this morning. These are hard words, but words we need to hear nonetheless. And our main point this morning is gonna be our outline, we're just gonna break it down, it's this, by abiding in the word, true believers are set free from sin because they are children of God. By abiding in the word, true believers are set free from sin because they are children of God. We're gonna break that down this morning. First, we notice that Jesus says what a true disciple really looks like. You say, well, what's what's the difference then between someone who merely professes faith with their mouth and someone who possesses faith in their heart? What's the difference? Jesus says it's abiding in his word. It's abiding in the word of Christ. You see this in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So for Jesus, one of the marks of saving faith is abiding in his word. It's important because Jesus isn't playing by the same categories that you and I tend to play by when we think about the walk of faith. Here's the way we tend to think about it. Someone may be genuinely converted... And it's all great, but they're just not super serious about discipleship. And so at some point down the road, they get super serious about discipleship, but they have a hunger for the word. They dive into it. And that's wonderful. And so what we come to do is we treat that discipled Christian as if they're a special class of Christian, as if it's a matter of difference of maturity levels. But Jesus says, this is not the difference between just different levels of maturity in believers. This is a level between someone who is a genuine believer and someone who is not. And we do a great disservice to people's eternal destinies when we in the church treat people who are serious about Christ and hungry for his word as if they are a special class of Christians, the elite group among us, rather than what it looks like to be a basic follower of Christ. Jesus is after disciples who abide with him, remain with him, stay put. They don't wander off looking for someone else or something else. They stick with Jesus. They stick with his word. He's saying these things to a large crowd who have just made professions of faith. There's a revival breaking out. And Jesus is not cruel about it, but he does a little bit pour some cold water on it and says, I want to make sure you know what you're getting into. I want to make sure this is actually legit. You can picture there's a a massive youth conference, 300 students get up and they walk the aisle and the pastor then says, well, we'll see if this is genuine. He would say, who talks like that? Jesus talks like that. Jesus talks like that if you abide in my word, well, you're my true disciple. Jesus wants to make sure they know what they're getting into. Are you really believing in me? Here's some of the fruit of what that will look like. The evidence of someone's, of the genuineness of someone's profession of faith is not ultimately in the passion with which it is proclaimed at the moment. It is the perseverance with which it is prized for a lifetime. Perseverance is an indicator of a person's walk with Jesus we should be less enthralled by professions of faith that come from an emotional high and we should be more enthralled by those who are still walking with Jesus after many years you know a few weeks ago in John chapter 6 we saw the glorious reality that Jesus will never let us go it's the precious truth of eternal security meaning that those who come to Christ will be kept by Christ forever it's a glorious reality and sometimes we call it well once saved always saved He said, Josh, do you believe that? And I would say, absolutely, I do. I would also tell you, I think that's not the best term for it. The better term, instead of once saved, always saved, is perseverance of the saints, meaning those who are saved will persevere, because God will see to it that they persevere, because he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God will do the work. He will cause you to persevere. That's what it looks like to follow him. And the secret to abiding in him, the secret to persevering, the secret to remaining with Christ is is not really a secret at all. Jesus tells us it's abiding in his word, which has some massive implications for your spiritual walk today. Jesus says, you want to be my disciples? You want to know me? You want to know who I am? Abide in my word. Look at my word. Study my word. Read my word. Say, well, what's his word? It's singular here. It probably refers to the totality of what he taught. The sum of the message that Jesus proclaimed, the gospel message that he proclaimed. He says, okay, abide in that word, the word that is written here in this book. Jesus says, you want to know me? You want to follow me? You want to know more of me? Abide in my word. Abide in my word. If you are passionate about Jesus, you will be passionate about his word. If you want to know Jesus, you will want to know his word. If you are hungry to have more of Jesus, you will be hungry to have more of his word. That's what Jesus is saying here. Piper says it like this, if you try to run after the Lord without running through this, the word, then you will find someone else. The only way we can truly know the Lord is through his word revealed to us. The only way we can truly abide in him is through his word as he has given to us. And that's how Jesus says, if you're really a believer, that's what you're going to look like. And it's not about how studious or academic you are. I'm not saying you have to go learn the Greek. It's wonderful if you do, but you don't have to. It's not about how educated or smart or, or how studious you are. It's not about how much time you put into it or what your study habits look like. It's not like, well, I missed my quiet time for three days. Now I have to question my salvation. It's none of that at all. Here's what it is, is are you submitting your heart before the scriptures and saying, this is the authority in my life and the Christ that this exalts is most precious to me. It's not about how much time you spend, although spending more time is better. Don't, don't, your takeaway from the sermon should not be, Josh said, don't spend time. No, no, it's not about how much time you spend, about How how deep you go into study, it's about your posture toward it. Am I submitting myself before the Lord through his word? I think what we read about Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 is instructive for us. It says this, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The Lord reveals himself to us by the word of the Lord. That's how you know him. And it means that you remain committed to his word when life is good and when life gets hard. It means when you you remain committed to the word, when it agrees with what you already thought and when it challenges what you thought. It is your highest source of truth. You submit your mind, body, and soul to what it teaches because you delight in the Christ that it exalts. And Jesus says to not heed his words is to be subject to the wrath of God. So he told the crowds, we saw this last week, verse 24. He told them, I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's why it's important that Jesus is clarifying what belief looks like, because Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, it leads to eternal death. To not believe in Christ is to die in your sins. But to believe in him is to trust that Jesus died for me, that my sins were placed upon him. When he went to the cross, it was in my place, that, that, that God will not hold my sins against me because Jesus paid it all for me. That when Jesus rose from the dead, that I too live with him. To believe in Jesus is to take God at his word and to trust him in what he says. And to submit, submit my life to his good rule and his rightful reign in all things. You know, Charles Spurgeon warned there would be people who were damned to hell and would die in their sins, who had a yes sir to Jesus on their tongues because they lived and harbored a no sir to Jesus in their hearts. It is not merely about professing faith with your mouth. It is about possessing faith with your heart, trusting in him and leaning into his word as our highest source of truth. True believers are those who are like the disciples. We saw at the end of John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What it means to abide in him is to say, Lord, where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? You're the one who has the words of life. That's what it looks like to abide with him. And John tells us that these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This book is written to clarify your belief and my belief in this Christ Jesus. Are you submitting your life to him? Are you abiding in him through his word? Are you trusting in his work for you? Or are you trusting in what you think is right? Resisting what he says in his word. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, or if you made a profession of faith at some point, and you think, it doesn't really look like what we've been talking about here, then here's what needs to happen. You need to hear the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So right now, as you listen to the word of God lifted up, pray, God, would you cause me to believe what you say and hold fast to it? Trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. See, God tells you a lot of things about yourself. God tells you that you are dead in your sins. God tells you that you are enslaved in your sins and you need to trust him enough to believe that, but you also need to trust him enough to believe that what he says about his grace and his forgiveness is also true. Do you believe God's word? Do you trust his word right now? If you're not a believer in Jesus, take him at his word and believe. And for all who are believing in him, keep hearing his word. Keep trusting what he has said. Keep encountering and enjoying Christ as he is revealed through his word. That's what it means to be a believer, to truly abide in his word and be a true disciple means that you allow the word to confront your sins, to challenge your assumptions, to call you to holiness, and to cause you to treasure Christ. And the fruit that this produces in our lives is freedom. It produces freedom. Abiding in God's word produces freedom from sin in our lives. By abiding in his word, true believers are set free from sin. Jesus continues this thought. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Notice, Jesus says true freedom comes through submitting to him. It's the opposite of the way that we tend to think about freedom. We tend to think that freedom means I don't have to submit to anybody. I don't have to listen to anybody. I can't be free if someone else is telling me what to do. Jesus says, that's not true freedom. True freedom is only found in submitting to him. The Bible actually tells us a picture of what it looks like to just do whatever you want and not be subject to anyone. It's in the book of Judges. It's a dark period in Israel's history, not exactly a model of go look at that. We are told everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And to you and me, it's like, well, that sounds Lovely. That's exactly what I want. I want to do whatever I think is right. That's freedom to me. And the Bible comes along and says, that's not freedom. That's slavery. What we think is the height of freedom. The Bible comes along and says, that's the height of rebellion against him. Jesus says, true freedom comes through abiding in his word, trusting in him, trusting Jesus, your ways are better than my ways. Your thoughts are better than my thoughts. I'm going to submit my life to you. That's where true freedom is found. Jesus said to them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's why we need freedom. All of us, in our natural state, enslaved to sin. And Jesus is saying sin is more than just the bad stuff that you do, it's more than just I made a mistake at some point. Sin is a power that holds sway over our hearts. We sin because we are sinners. And the reason we sin is because we are enslaved to it. And sin keeps us from obeying Christ. We don't follow him. We don't follow his word. And there's no amount of effort or willpower that will actually cause you to live in obedience to what he has said. We tend to greatly think that we're better off than we really are. Just like an addict who thinks, so I can stop at any time. So to we in our sin think, ah, I can stop at any time. I can turn my life around whenever I want. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried just to stop sinning? You can't do it. Sin keeps us from obeying Christ. Sin also keeps us from desiring Christ. See, if you don't actually want to do something, you're not really free to do it. You might still do it. It's just begrudging. Ah, I don't want to, want to do it. But if in order to really be free, you need to have the desire to do it. You need to have the opportunity to do it. So in our sin, we can't obey him. We don't have the opportunity to obey him. Also in our sin, we don't have the desire to obey him. We're not really free. In fact, Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe in me. The reason for their unbelief is that he's telling them the truth. They don't like what he says. They don't want who he is. They don't want Jesus. They don't desire Jesus. And so sin not only keeps us from obeying him and desiring him, it keeps us from being with him. He says, the crowds, you will die in your sins separated from any enjoyment of his presence forever that is the problem that every one of us finds ourselves in and we need to take Jesus at his word enough to believe that's who we are enslaved to sin but we also need to take him at his word enough to believe that the son really can set you free See, along comes Jesus, who's the son of God. He says this, if the son sets you free, well, then you will be free indeed. You see that? He says, you'll be fre- set free from the bondage to sin. See, Jesus knew all about that condition that we find ourselves in. He knew all about the problem we found ourselves, and he knew that human beings are enslaved to sin. He knew that in your power and my power, we could not break the chains that bind us. He knew all of that. He knew that we long to be free, but we don't have the desire to actually follow him. We don't want to give up the sin. He knew all of that. He said, but if the sun sets you free, well, then you'll be free indeed. You can't do it. We can't break the chains. But if the sun does, that's decisive, victory, done. He sets you free. That's the good news of the gospel. See, Jesus is the one who knew all about us. He saw us at our worst. He saw the chains. He saw our imprisonment. We saw it last week. To those who walked in darkness, on them has a light shone. That we who live in darkness, the darkness of our imprisonment, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. And to us who walk in slavery to sin with the shackles bound, Jesus comes and says, if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. To Jesus lived obediently. He never was ensnared in sin. The shackles that bind our hearts, they never bound his. And yet his hands were bound. He was arrested and tried and killed for us. He went to the cross to break the chains that bind you and me. And he was resurrected from the dead so that we would walk in freedom following after him. Jesus broke the chains of sin calls us forth from the grave, come follow me, I'll set you free. One of the greatest lyrics ever written describes this very well. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friend, here's what it means. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, it means you can walk in freedom right now today. The chains that once bound you have been broken. The cell door stands ajar and you can walk out in freedom. You don't have to say yes to that sin anymore. You can say no. You don't have to live in the sin that once enslaved you. Jesus has broken the chains. Now that sin might continue to nag you, haunt you, tempt you day by day, but you can say no. You can say yes to Jesus and no to sin. Because if the sun has set you free, then you will be free indeed. You know Augustine had a famous formula that helps us understand these things better. Some biblical theology as he walks you through the story of Scripture. He says, you know, in the Garden of Eden, go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Well, Adam and Eve in uh, in the garden, they were able to sin. We know that well. They were also able not to sin. They had the choice. They could choose either. And what happened is Adam and Eve, of course, chose to sin. They chose to rebel against the Lord. And what that did is it plunged all of all the human race into sin. So that you and I then, who are descendant from Adam, we don't have the same options they have. We are not able to not sin. We, we can't choose not to sin. We're just, we're enslaved to it. But then along comes Christ. And as he sets us free, all of a sudden, we are restored again to where Adam and Eve were in the garden. We're able to sin but we are also able not to sin. We're not enslaved to it like we once were. We can can say no, moment by moment to sin and say yes to Christ. And one day, one day, those who are believers in Jesus will not be able to sin. It will be done away with. The sin and the temptation that haunts you today, it will be done with. You'll be fully and forever free in Christ. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. You have the freedom right now to say yes to Jesus and to say no to sin, to follow him into holiness. You are not perfected yet, but one day you will be, and today you can walk in the freedom that he has already offered to you. The chains have been decisively broken at the cross. I think Jen Wilkin is helpful in this. She says that at the cross, we are set free from the penalty of sin. Right now, today, we are being set free from the power of sin in our lives. And one day, we will be set free from the presence of sin entirely. It will be done away with. So keep running the race, fighting by faith, saying yes to Jesus, no to sin. He has set you free. And here's the key. If you're not sure, well, how do I do that? How do I fight against sin? If you feel discouraged in the fight, if you feel right now that the sin seems to be winning and that it seems like this is a losing uphill battle, here's how to wage the war. Abide in his word. Abide in his word. If it's the truth that sets you free, then live in the truth and live in the freedom. Commit yourself to reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating on the Bible, praying over the Bible, and arm yourself with the sword of the spirit in the fight against sin. Leverage the promises of God. Say, God, I trust you. I trust you. Cling to the promises that he has made to you. You know, I've used this illustration before, so forgive me for using it again. Um, When I think of sin, I uh, think maybe the best imagery of it is found in the Lord of the Rings with the power of the ring. Um, In fact, I think it's so powerful that uh, I have a little reminder of the ring by where I do my morning devotions. I'm more of a nerd than you knew I was. And um, let's see, the ring promises freedom, power, significance, but it's corrupting. Its influence is corrupting. And as Frodo goes along his journey, he knows he needs to be rid of it, but he can't help himself. He can't, can't seem to part with it. Maybe that's where you feel this morning. You know you need to be rid of sin. You know that habitual sin you've been harboring in your heart. You, you know you need to be rid of it, but you can't seem to bring yourself to part with it. Well, in the Lord of the Rings, there's another character, the creature Gollum, who is a, uh, um, a foil to Frodo's character, shows what happens when you can't bear to part with the ring. And uh, if you remember the scene, especially if you've seen it on screen, you can see at the end of the, the, the movies when Gollum finally gets his precious ring back. He is leaping for joy at the edge of the volcano right before he falls into the flames. That's what freedom apart from Christ looks like. I found my precious. I got what I was really after while you're standing on the edge of a volcano right before falling into the flames. That's what freedom apart from Jesus looks like. But freedom in Christ looks like dropping the ring. I don't need it. I want Jesus. Jesus is better than whatever sin can offer me. I want Jesus instead. I'm gonna say yes to him. I'm gonna walk in the freedom that he has offered to me. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom is only found in Jesus. Is only found in submitting yourself to Him and His Word, trusting that what He says is right, and living out in obedience to Him. And it's because we are brought near to God as His own children. We are adopted in Christ as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father, children of God given a new identity. We've been transferred from the kingdom of the devil into the kingdom of the Savior. See, by abiding in the Word, true believers are set free from sin because they are children of God we have a new identity. That's why we can walk in freedom. We've been made new. We have a new father, and we can follow him. This is the point of contention between Jesus and the Jews. Comes down to this question. Who is your father? Jesus' sons are going to look like their dads. So who's your father? Sometimes this is a wonderful blessing. You know, outside of telling me you look like your heavenly father, the greatest compliment you could ever pay me is that you look like your earthly father. The greatest compliment you could ever give to me is you look like your dad. It's a cause for great rejoicing in my heart. I hope that's true as I live. Other times, it's a haunting reality, like with Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. If you remember the end of Empire, he faces down Dad Vader, and he says, I am your father, and Luke is horrified by it. And the reason he's horrified is because it brings to him the, the recognition that maybe he could turn out just like his dad. Sorry for the spoiler alert, but it's been 40-some years, so um, <laughs> what have you been—I don't know. Uh, and that's the whole central drama of Return of the Jedi. Is Luke going to wind up like his father? Jesus is saying here, listen, um, you don't look anything like the father you claim. Jesus is picking up their family resemblance. They say, we look like Abraham. We're children of Abraham. Right, You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord, right? That song, I'm convinced, was invented to allow dancing in churches that didn't allow dancing, right? That's why they came up with that. But the Jews are saying, listen, Abraham is our father, and Jesus is saying, you look nothing like Abraham. How is he your father? See in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. So Jesus, okay, you know what? Technically, you are descendants of Abraham. Physically, offspring, yep, okay, that's undeniable but God cares far more that you are spiritually like Abraham than that you are physically like Abraham. The true children of Abraham are not those who are born ethnically, but those who are born spiritually of God. And so Jesus flips it around and says, listen, if you were really children of Abraham, you would be living like Abraham did, and you're not. It's a massive difference between them and father Abraham. Abraham is a wonderful example in scripture of what it looks like to abide in God's word. Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to Abraham. Hey, Abe, go to a foreign land. What does Abraham do? He obeys. Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, hey, Abe, would you circumcise every male in your family? What does Abraham do? He obeys. Genesis chapter 22, God shows up to Abraham. Hey, Abe, take your son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. What does Abraham do? He obeys. It might well be said, the theme of Abraham's life is this, that he did not get everything perfect, but he did trust the Lord and trusted his word enough to step out by faith. They're, they're nothing like Abraham. They're not doing that. They're not trusting Jesus at his word. They're not believing what he says, and they're not stepping out by faith in what he has promised. To be a child of Abraham is to be like Abraham and take God at his word. But Jesus says, instead, all you want to do is you want to kill me. When Abraham entertained visitors from God, he showed them remarkable hospitality. When these, the, when these crowds receive the son sent from God, they show him remarkable hostility and want to kill him. They're not like Abraham. Abraham believed the truth, they had believed lies. Jesus says, Abe's not your father. Someone else is your father. So they they, they claim, yeah, we do have another father besides Abraham. Here's what they say in verse 41. Middle of the verse, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. You say, well, well, who brought up the whole idea of sexual immorality, where'd that come from? Well, it's almost certainly a veiled insult at Jesus. He's questioning their origins. They're going to start questioning his. After all, it wasn't exactly a well-kept secret. Do you hear that young woman, Mary, got pregnant before she was married? And that Joseph married her anyway? And, you know, they tried to tell us, hey, you know, she's a virgin. Everything is good. It was was of God. But how dumb do you think we are? I mean, we know how babies are made. We know where they come from. See, the angel had visited Mary and Joseph. They hadn't visited the crowds. The, the, the scandal of Jesus' birth was well-known. So they said, Jesus, who are you to talk to us about where we come from? We know where you came from. We weren't born of sexual immorality, unlike someone we know. We're children of God. And Jesus turns it around and says, if you were children of God, you would love me. If you were really children of God, you would recognize who I am, the son of God sent from him. So he says, instead of God being your father, He says, you look more like the devil. These are hard words. Jesus says this in verse 42. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You look a lot more like he than me. Think back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. What does the devil come along and does? He he comes he starts lying about who God is, lying about what God has said, and they believe him. They trust him instead of God. Genesis chapter four, very next chapter, what are some of the consequences of that sin that play out? Cain murders his brother Abel. The devil is a liar and he is a murderer. And what do these crowds wanna do? Jesus says, you wanna kill me? You wanna murder me? Who does that look more like? And you don't believe what I'm telling you. You've believed lies about God, not the truth that I'm saying to you. Who does that look more like? See, so the truth does set free, but the truth is also resisted by those who love the lies of the evil one. And it is, it is very important, it's important. This is not a Jewish problem. Jesus is not singling out the Jews and saying, listen, you your children of the devil. He is saying, this is a human problem. This is all of us. All of us are children of the devil. All of us are are enslaved to sin. Whoever doesn't believe in Jesus is a child of the devil. That's our problem. See, sometimes they'll say, well, we're all just children of God. Well, that's not true. Christmas is coming. You'll hear the song. Santa knows we're all God's children. Santa doesn't know we're not all God's children. If you're rebelling against him, if you don't believe in him, you're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil, Jesus says, enslaved in sin. But that's why Jesus came. First John tells us this. This is is our problem. First John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, we are children of the devil. We are enslaved to sin. But that's why Jesus came. That's why he was sent by the Father to destroy the works of the devil and to set free those who are held captive in his sway, to set free those who are enslaved to sin, to cause us to be born again and adopted as children of the Father. That's why Jesus came. And so I hope this text is a warning, a wake-up call to those who might just kind of be coasting through life and saying, "Well, you know, uh, sure, I I don't really know where I'm at with Jesus." To, to, To wake up and say, "This is serious." Take Jesus at his word, but I also hope this is a word of immense comfort for those of you who are believing in him and trusting his word. It's immense comfort to know what Jesus has done for us, to cling to him by abiding in his word that you know and love Jesus, who he really is. He has revealed himself to you through his word. So an, important, an appropriate application of this message this morning would simply be to commit yourself to his word. If that's how he reveals himself to us, Then commit yourself to studying it, to knowing it, to pouring over it, to internalizing it in your life. Commit yourself to the word of Christ. And would you pray, Lord, would you cause me to believe what I'm reading here? Would you captivate my soul with the beauty of your son through your word? Would you cause me to trust you in what you say and obey you in my life in submission to your word? Pray that as you you read through the scripture, pour over it, and as you cling to his word, then you fight against sin. See, to try to follow Jesus and to try to fight temptation without his word is just like showing up to a football game without a football. I wish it had happened the last play last night, but otherwise it's not, it doesn't normally work. To try to show up to fight sin and to fight temptation without his word, it's not going to work. So he said, like, I'm, I'm gonna fight sin by arming myself with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and fight against sin and the freedom that Christ has already brought me. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. The devil doesn't have hold on your life anymore. You belong to God. You're a child of God. So live it, live in light of that. Look more like him than like the devil. Follow him in freedom and commit yourself to his word. You know, this week I was talking with someone, we're sharing our mutual appreciation for what I think is perhaps the greatest hymn that's ever been written, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that song, here's what the church confesses, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Do you see that? God has willed that the truth of his word will triumph It will, the devil will not have the last say. God's word will reign victorious in your life and through your life as you submit yourself to Christ in his word. As you look at what he has said and called you to do and you follow him, the devil has no hold on you. You're child of the king, the father. We can live free as Christ has set us free. So stand firm and abide in his word. Trust the good provision of the Lord and rest in the loving gaze of your heavenly father who has brought you from the kingdom of the devil into the kingdom of his son. It says, follow me. Set free in Christ Jesus so that you would know him and enjoy him for all of our days. Father, we thank you for your word given to us. Ask that you would cause us to heed the word in our hearts this morning. I pray for those who need to be convicted of sin, awakened from slumber, belief needs to be clarified. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts to convict them of these things and to remind them of your grace. I pray for those who need to be comforted by these words, that you would comfort them by your spirit, to know that you are a loving heavenly father. I pray that as we abide in your word that you would keep us that you would cause us to follow you in freedom, to live in light of who you are and what you have called us to, that we would look not like the father of lies, but the father of truth, to know you and love you. Would you do this in our hearts? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.